Hey everyone, welcome back to another great episode of Wild Connection. This is our first episode on the new schedule of the Every Other Sunday, so thank you for tuning in. This is also the third in our series of Women in Science, sponsored by the American Geophysical Union and their Sharing Science Grant. This past week in Colorado, four cold cases of homicide were solved, finally bringing some closure to the victims' families. On this episode, I talk with forensic anthropologist Dr. Ann Ross about what it takes to get to the bottom of a crime, forensically speaking. I also got to film Dr. Ross in her lab, and that video will be coming to my YouTube channel, Wild Connection, soon, so stay tuned. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. In another life, I would have been a forensic anthropologist. I devoured books by Iris Johansson and her main character, forensic specialist Eve Duncan. The truth is, I like to solve puzzles, and becoming a police detective or forensic anthropologist was high on my list. I still love crime mystery novels, and as you'll hear, who knows, maybe there's a career change in my future. It's this love of forensics and solving of mysteries that drove this week's guest to become a forensic anthropologist. Dr. Ann Ross. She's a professor at NC State University and works with the North Carolina Medical Examiner to identify human remains and shed light on what happened to someone's bones. All right, everybody, I'm really excited to welcome forensic anthropologist Dr. Ann Ross to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is really exciting for me as well. Uh, and thank you for thinking of me. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I sort of met you about almost a year ago, I guess, um, because you were in a uh, sort of a, a happy hour lab group that uh, was very inclusive and invited me to participate when I was briefly in North Carolina, which is where you're based. And I have always been fascinated with forensic science. So this is a super treat for me. Um can you can you tell uh, the audience a little bit so I'd like everybody to know kind of how you arrived at your career path? Like, how did you become a forensic anthropologist and why? Well, you know, it was really a circuitous route because I didn't really know what forensic anthropology was. Let's be honest. I didn't even know what anthropology was when I left high school. Right. That was right. not taught as a class in high school. And then when I went and my dad, you know, I still joke with him about it because his vision for me was so I'm from Panama. My mom's Chilean and my dad is from the UK. So for him, the vision of a good, steady job would be banking, work as a banker. OK, right? you know, yeah. I was like, that is so far off that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did try. I give. I gave it my, you know, A for effort. 
I got a D in my accounting class. My first <laughs> one. I totally bombed the second one. I just couldn't. I, it was just so horrible to me. And it was torture. Um, so then I kind of investigated like Latin American studies. I ended up with a Latin American studies degree in that. And that was okay because it's for Spanish speakers. Okay. So we were doing history. We were doing all kinds of interesting things, you know, the revolutions and literature and all kinds of, but my last class was an introduction to physical anthropology class. I was hooked immediately. I was like, wow, I had no idea this existed. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like, you can do what, you know, and I really love the like fossil record stuff and evolutionary stuff. So then with that in mind, I went and got a second bachelor's degree thinking that I was going to do more of that Evo, you know, paleo kind of side. And so, uh, you know, plodding along and I honestly don't know. Yes, I do. I met a friend in undergrad and we started working on a small project on gunshot wounds and bone. I cold called um, uh, Dr. Joe Davis, who was the chief medical examiner in Miami-Dade Medical Examiners, which was one of the first state-of-the-art ME systems. He was like a real visionary. He's since passed, but I just called him and he said, well, I actually have uh, a bone room and, you know, they, you know, hold on to evidence, right, for trial and things like that. So he had cases dating back to, geez, Louise, I want to say 50s and 60s. Wow. And he offered me the opportunity to come and intern and work at the ME's office looking at trauma and all this other stuff. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And he actually, the funny thing is he actually wanted his son to go into this, but his son went over to the dark side and did archeology span instead and wasn't interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too bad. Well, too bad for him and great for you. And great for me. And he was really, really mentored me, um, wrote letters of rec for when I went to grad school and yeah, he opened up a huge opportunity and I took their forensic uh, photography workshop, their uh, death investigation workshops. I actually got to look at and and be there with the autopsies and everything. Yeah, I got like full reign. It was fabulous. And none of it bothered you? Like you weren't at all sort of uncomfortable with uh, what you were kind of looking at? Like I imagine there might be people who can't look at an autopsy happening. They can, they're too, right. they can't disconnect from, you right. Know, right? So, I or- I say that I was not uncomfortable, right? Right. And, and they had, what was state of the art with them too, was that they had a decomp room that you would put like the really bad decomp or HIV kind of infectious disease autopsy would be going there. And lo and behold, it was right next to the bone room. So, you know, it, the smell of the decomp did get to me at first and, and autopsies too, right? Cause 
it, yeah, but then I got used to it. I was just interested in the work that they were doing and their cases. And yeah, and he gave me access to, you know, go through the files and all kinds of stuff. It was really fabulous. And I learned about forensic photography from them and all of that. So I'm curious because we'll talk a little bit, well, a lot about your current work with contemporary cases and maybe even cold cases. But is there also a place for what you do in archaeology, right? Because sometimes I hear stories or I read stories, they find, you know, uh, remains that are a thousand years old and they can tell that there was trauma to, you know, the body. And in fact, even a paleontologist I know who studies sharks, they or there are or there are she finds um, evidence of shark bites on other species bones. Right. Right. And so are there some common kind of principles to figuring out whether it's an old, uh, you know, fossil or it's uh, a modern anatomically modern human? Are there some principles to identifying what happened to someone? Yeah, you apply the same models that you would do in a contemporary case. Um, I have another love, which is um, tracking migration patterns, like peopling up the new world is one of my shticks. So uh, I used uh, a geometric morphometrics from craniofacial landmarks to kind of model those things. And these are, we're talking prior to um, European arrival. So that's kind of my time period with that. And so I've had a lot of fun doing that kind of work, too. So I do look at prehistoric remains. I find our human recent human history fascinating as well. Yeah, that's kind of my hobby. And and just for the audience, when we say craniofacial landmarks, what does that mean? That means that I collect coordinate data or X, Y and Z. Uh, landmarks from anatomical landmarks that are homologous, right? You can find these landmarks in other primates and, you know, other animals and they're easily replicated, right? uh, Across taxa as well. Okay. So is that like things like the distance between the eyes and the, or the, Um, that would be, so that would be a linear measurement. I do 3d. So it would be, for example, uh, the landmark Nasion. Okay. Or Glabella. Okay. Which is between the eyes. Between the eyes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. So you, you got hooked with a class and this is what is so unexpected for so many people. You know, I, I, I was hooked on detective novels, but I never had the opportunity to take, you know, an anthropology or physical anthropology class. I was in the neuroscience kind of realm because I figured out I was interested in behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, but I was always fascinated with crime novels. And there's one author who wrote a lot of um, forensic um, mysteries where there were facial reconstructions to solve crimes of missing people. And so... So you went forward into grad school and were you always sure that you wanted to work in a medic for a medical examiner's office, uh, you know, helping to solve uh, crimes or is that just something that came later? Uh, yeah. So my training was, um, you know, pretty uh, forensic anthropology specialty. Um, I went to the University of Tennessee and my advisor 
for my master's was Dr. Bill Bass. As you know, he's a huge name, started the first, you know, uh, body decomp center in the United States. I found him to be very much like Joe Davis. They were visionaries, right? They had another idea of how to do this, but in different disciplines, obviously. And no, after um, I knew that I was gonna stay on this trajectory. And then for my PhD, I studied under Richard Jantz, uh, Lyle Koenigsberg, uh, Richard uh, was my advisor and Dr. McCormick, who is a forensic pathologist. So I had that team. And so that work actually got me started in human rights work. So then I kind of did a stint doing human rights work as well and interested in that. And after I graduated, I I worked for the Chilean Truth Commission and the Truth Commission in Panama and did those kinds of types of work. And this was during my postdoc, which is at the University of Florida, the Pound Lab. Okay. And can you can you talk a little bit more about what this what that entails? What what that entailed, the Chilean truth uh work missions. So um um that one entailed a had tried to identify uh, individuals, right, of the disappeared during the Pinochet regime. They have found remains, but they had misidentified them, right? They were, in their effort to return the disappeared back to the families, they really did some bad, bad science, right? But I guess they thought they were helping just return something. I don't remember how they found out that they were incorrect. And then they brought in kind of a global team. People came in from all over to kind of correct those wrongs. So as you can imagine, the the victims' families were, you know, doubly traumatized, right? Because yeah. they, you know, they thought they had their loved ones back. Then no, you don't. It's taken back from you. And then it left a huge distrust with that commission, but then they formed a really good team. And of course, it, I'm not sure how many happened ID'd, but they were going down the correct passage. For the Panamanian Truth Commission, that entailed the disappeared during the disappearances <clears throat> during uh, the Torrijos and Noriega regime, so 70s and 80s. Yeah. Okay. And what we were looking for, the Truth Commission was doing interviews and looking for, you know, doing interviews, right, with witnesses and things. And so once we got eyewitness accounts, they would be a follow up and then we'd go and, and excavate and see if we could find them and then try to make some identifications. Okay. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, there's got to be uh, an element of sort of satisfaction to be able to provide that kind of closure to people and their families through your work. Um, how, how meaningful has that been for you? Really, actually, that, that is kind of, that's the end game is to be able to give the families an answer. You know, they're never going to get closure, but they at least will know and kind of maybe be able to rest easy that they know what happened. So one of the cases from Panama, it was really interesting. He was actually uh, Chilean. He was former Chilean Navy, had gone to fight the opposition of the dictatorship to Panama, was captured, 
And uh, I think that was 1979 case. We were able to identify him. I thought honestly that we were looking for a needle in a haystack, but it just kind of all settled. And we were working with the Chilean embassy in Panama. And the best thing was, you know, his mom was aging. She was not going to live much longer. We were able to get her son back to her before she died. So that was that was really a kicker for me. Well, it's interesting because I I think that sometimes that element is not emphasized. I mean, you know, we've all seen like CSI and and shows like that and Bones or another one. And I'm not sure how often they really show the the real side of the importance of the work that you're doing. But when it comes to the tools that you use to solve these puzzles, really, mm-hmm. how realistic are those shows uh, in terms of what you actually do or what really happens in cases? Well, it, <laughs> it's uh, it's. It's all Hollywood, right? Uh, <laughs> nothing gets solved in, in an hour, number one. Um, uh, I actually turn on my lights. I don't work in the dark. Uh, it's helpful to see, right? It's helpful to see, yes. And I don't, I know, I think for a while, Bones had like holograms, right? That they recreated the scene. We don't have that. Okay. It'd be nice, but we don't have it. Um, so yeah, so (laughs) it's very unrealistic. (laughs) Well, what kind of tools do you use, um, in your, in your work? Like what, uh, yeah. So help paint a picture of your lab and, and I know we're going to have a video uh, that we're also going to do that's going to come out with this podcast. Um, so listeners can also check that out, but, but sort of paint us a picture of, of what your lab looks like and what kind of tools you have at your disposal. Uh, well, it's about a thousand square feet. We have an x-ray room, uh, an evidence control closet too. Uh, so there are four tables that you can lay out a skeleton in anatomical position. And so the first thing we do is of course, uh, do intake photos, right? Exactly what we receive. They get a number, you know, recorded. We lay them out in an anatomical position, inventory, right? That's the next thing we do. And then we just go, if they are unidentified or unknown, we'll do a full biological profile, meaning uh, estimating age of death, biological um, sex, stature, uh, population affinity, And then we also kind of do look at if there are any kind of weird skeletal variants that could um, help at some point get an identification, any, you know, anti-mortem trauma where you can see heel fractures or something like that. And then we go through the post-mortem trauma as well Um, and perimortem, right, because you have to differentiate all those three. Wait, so can you, so I, I am a novice. I, I have a little bit of sense just because of my understanding of how we break down words, but what are those different stages mean? So anti-mortem is something that happened during life. Okay. Uh, perimortem, it's at or around the time of death. Right. And post-mortem is after death. Okay. 
Perfect. That's what I suspected, but I was using a different reference word. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you have to sort of distinguish between, you know, what were, were things that happened when they were alive and what were things that happened just before or during the time that they died? And then what are things that have happened after they died? What kinds of things happen to people after they die? Well, Oh, they get scavenged, right? You have scavengers, uh, all kinds. You have um, normal, like if they were collected improperly, it could be postmortem breakage, you know, degradation from being out in the elements, you know, all kinds of things. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got to be able to distinguish to help, you know, be more accurate or be precise in determining the cause of death. Is that usually what you're trying to do is ID an individual if, you, if they're not ID'd and determine the cause of death? Well, we like, um, I don't have jurisdiction of making those determinations. That's the medical examiner. Okay. So my role is to assist the medical examiner when there is trauma to bone to help them explain for them to determine manner and cause of death. Okay. I but they're the only ones who can officially say this is the cause yes. of death. Yeah. And manner. And because they're the ones that also, you know, sign the death certificates as well. Right. Okay. Do you ever, and I assume you have DNA tools at your disposal to try to, um, do you ever try to genetically identify an individual when you suspect? Yes. That's done from the ME's office side though. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then for the cold cases that we're working on, we're trying forensic genealogy. I work with a colleague of mine who's a forensic genealogist. So So there's different, yeah, areas. Okay. So cold cases, right? These are, let's see if I've got this right. (laughs) These are cases where there's been no resolution either on who the individual is and or how they died or just who they are. Sometimes it's both. Um, So the first thing is to figure out who they are, right? We don't have a name for them. Right. And then once you find out who they are, then you can understand the circumstances of their death a little bit better, too. Okay, And that's got to be hard for family members that might still be alive, you know, that they've gotten no answers. And I'm curious if there's ever been a case that really stands out for you that's very memorable in some way. Yes, there's several, actually. But uh, for the cold cases, um, one thing I'd like to say is that these are generally marginalized individuals, right? Marginalized in life, and then they're also marginalized in death. And so it's it's that whole issue that we're dealing with to to get them their personal identity back. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the forensic cases that really stood out um, was one that we assisted in the recovery as well. It it was the case of uh, Pazuzu Algarad. He had changed his name to the demon from the exorcist okay. and had killed a couple of people and and buried them in his backyard and would do like ritualistic 
types of things. You know, we even found uh, the, the remains, uh, the bones of a goat, okay. right? Because that's what you would sacrifice for your. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was insane. So we're right. talking like a proper sociopathic serial killer or psychopathic yeah. serial killer. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was really bizarre. And, you know, we went and walked through the house. It had all this, like, uh, there was a lot of burning in the house. And every single section of the wall was covered in some kind of, I think he was trying to speak in tongues, like Eritrean or some odd thing that was, like, written on there and symbols and all kinds of crazy stuff. Wow. And so then you recovered the bodies from the yard mm -hmm. and, and, and is that one of the few times you've been at a crime scene or do you often go to crime scenes? And that is actually some of our, uh, part of, uh, my wheelhouse that we do that. We assist law enforcement on cases when they ask for that. But the interesting thing in, in North Carolina is that, um, a lot of our law enforcement are really good, right? At doing that. So uh, I will help in on occasion, but I don't go out all the time. Like I haven't been out in the last two years, I don't think. Wow. Okay. Okay. And so then you, when you, were you able to identify the victims in the, um, that case? Yes. Those were identified by, uh, you know, the Emmy's office and DNA because they had some missing people. And then this, this gentleman and his wife were, um, you know, uh, in jail. Right. So mm -hmm. we were able to identify who they were. So then we were able to also say, you know, the trajectory, how they were shot. And yeah, so then they were returned to their families. Now, you mentioned something because you you studied at University of Tennessee and they uh, and and Tennessee has what is colloquially called the body farm. Mm -hmm. um, I think the appropriate scientific name is the human taphonomy facility. Is that right, is right. that right? Um, and yeah, taphonomy and I think for a while it was called DK facility too. But okay, maybe, yeah, I think they've um, upgraded the name maybe a little bit. Okay. And taphonomy and evolution, right? For fossils, I mean, that process um, is how things become fossilized over time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so have you been to the body farm? Is it open to the, like, what is the purpose of the body farm? To, how does it assist, you know, uh, forensic scientists in their work? Well, um, in the early years, they did a, an extensive amount of work on the postmortem interval. So decay rates, insect colonization, that type of things, they would um, put them in different environments in a car, in the water, you know. So they're used for those types of research, you know, decompositional studies to see if we can get better at time since death or the postmortem interval. Because once you get past, you know, the early stages, you know, they ask you, what's the PMI on this? I'm like, I don't know, a year, 10 years. You can't, right? right. You can't pinpoint that. And everybody wants you to give them, you know, the date and time. <laughs> <laughs> like 3 a.m. Exactly. on October 5th. This, right. Yeah. Of this year. Yeah. Right. Right. And that wouldn't 
I mean, I could see why over time that would become harder and harder and harder. Um, but it can be useful in the short term if you've got a certain rate of decay that, you know, happens in certain temperature and, and environment. Exactly. And, and now they've opened up these facilities actually globally. Right. And in different parts of the United States, even. Oh, wow. Because because decay. Right. And it's it's geographically dependent. Right. Oh, it depends sure. on the fauna, the insects, you know, the weather, the temperature, the humidity, all of those things, humidity, all of those things. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine in in um, in Tucson, Arizona, where it's the desert and there's not a lot of moisture, it's things are going to look really different than mm-hmm. what they're going to look like in a moist, wet kind of environment um, in terms of even just the way it de- something desiccates over, right. over time. Wow. This is, I mean, so this is so fascinating because, you know, in my heart, like I now, you, you know, your work makes me want to go back to grad school and okay. have a second career. And I know forensic um, science is used even to solve wildlife crimes. Have you ever been involved in solving wildlife crimes? Um, yes. Yeah, so there's a whole um, and that's really kind of relatively new, I would say, within the last really got going the last 10 years. And it's either uh, animal forensics or wildlife forensics. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm actually late on this uh, officer's case and I need to. That reminds me, I have to email and apologize for being late. Um, he had a case where um, they know that these people left and they found I think it was two or three dead dogs that were starved to death. So they had those kinds of, you know, animal rights types of cases. And I know they've used like wildlife forensics to deal with like poachers for rhinoceros horns and all kinds of things like that. Now, are there any kind of recent, you talked about the people that you meant that mentored you and, and how they were really visionaries in, in the field. How has the field changed? I mean, have there been any particular advances in approach or technology that have been a game changer from your perspective? Yeah, we have, you know, I can, I can see it like, you know, we used to start with calipers, right. Which we still use calipers to measure the bones for you know, stature and things like that, or age estimation methods have been improved using digitizers, x-ray, you know, digital microscopes, all of those things that were not available when I was a grad student has been uh, made a huge impact. Another uh, interesting recent, well, relatively recent area of research is using isotopes to track you know, if you use the teeth, you can tell where the person or where they grew up, right? Because dental tissues don't turn over. And if you use skeletal tissues, which do turn over eight to 10 years, you can track where they've been living, right? In the last five years or so, because, uh, you know, the United States is so huge. It's an entire continent. And a lot of these individuals that are unidentified, you know, a lot of them are transient. And some of the ones that we used kind of that triple prong approach, isotopes, forensic genealogy and forensic anthropology, they were all from out of state. Okay. Now, how do you what what are isotopes and what kinds do you use in in the teeth to tell 
um, where somebody grew up? How did, how is it embedded in your teeth? Well, um, you have heavy and stable isotopes, right? And I'm not an isotope expert, so I'm just going to give you the gist. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I, I know we have carbon and nitrogen. Yes, we have right? carbon, nitrogen, and, and uh, it's carbon. Uh, they use carbon, oxygen, and I think strontium are the big three that they use. Okay. And some of those are very similar to things, you know, like they they use in bioarchaeology to assess like dietary content gotcha. because the dietary content will tell you, okay, they ate like heavy corn, right? Yeah. For a period of time. And, and, and it'll give you an idea as to where those signatures are in the world. And they're trying to establish what they call isoscapes. Oh, nice. Maps. Right. Yeah. Of yeah. Where these things are. And they're based on mostly, I think, um, water. So, yes, you're drinking water. Right. It's oh, wow. a huge component to your signatures and your skeleton. So it's like a fingerprint, essentially, of your location. in some Yes. Way. Yeah. And that's what they use it for, you know, geolocation. Yeah. So it's it, it's it's neat. It, it's. Um, What's difficult about it, though, is that you have to use a special kind of mass spec to run those samples. And there's not that many of them. Right. And a mass spec is short for mass spectrometer, which right. will give uh, peaks uh, when it detects certain elements. If yeah, I'm, I'm going way back to my chemistry class um, at Florida Atlantic University when we had a mass spectrometer uh, that would break down what was all the elements that were in uh, mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it's a special one when it yeah, comes to. Yeah. And not one will do all three. Right? Oh gosh. Okay. I know. So you got one machine that does a couple, another machine that does this. And it's like finding the stupid machines. Right. You know, and available like bench time is crazy. But that could be so helpful for missing persons types of things, because a lot of times maybe somebody who is kidnapped or taken is moved to a secondary location right. um, and maybe even held and, and, and kept and moved to many different locations. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's pretty incredible. Now, you don't just do work for the medical examiner's office. You you also do research. So can you and you do a lot of research? I was particularly fascinated with um, one of your papers, morphological evidence of hybridization between Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans um, using, I guess, a craniometric uh, like uh, landmarks. Uh -huh. So I think everybody's sort of fascinated that that we have some introgression or some signatures of of Neanderthal and some people, um, but but talk to us a little bit about your your research that your lab does in general. In general, um, yeah. the the latest work I've been doing is on the issue of population affinity to finally get rid of racial terms, typological terms. So that's been one that I've been hammering out for like two, well, more than two years, more like 20 years, but. Um, and, that, so and that means like not, um, there've been some stereotypes about 
uh, I, I'm assuming the cranium or the, the skull shape and size and uh, mapping that onto socially defined um, racial groups. And so you're undoing that with your work. Yes. Like, you know, and, and it, unfortunately, it's almost it's a systemic problem because they're the categories that the government uses, the census, police, even when you go to the doctors. Right. Yes. They fill those stupid things out. Yes. Um, I routinely say prefer not to answer. So I don't participate in oh, the well, box checking. My, my go to is races don't exist. <laughs> well, that, I, do, I would I would write that in from now on. I'm going to do that if it's not a computer, uh, you know, checkbox, but an right. actual form. Maybe yeah. just write that in. That's brilliant. Um, and so how when you're doing that kind of work that has such enormous social implications, you know, are you met with resistance? Are you finding that you are um, making traction with undoing those harmful categories? Yes, there's, you know, it's it's a big debate actually within forensic anthropology right now. You have the people on the side, on one side that want to keep doing things the way that we're doing them. There are people on the other side that don't want you, that don't believe we should be doing population affinity at all. That it's, you know, don't do it because their take is, um, we don't know if it's causing more harm than good, right? Mm -hmm. That it needs to be studied because if we say population affinity of this person uh, is let's say Mesoamerican, or African-American by putting them in, in those population categories, is there going to be bias from the Emmys or law enforcement side for the ID purposes? Right. And then there's the middle ground, which is more where I am. I think we need to move away from using racialized language and using uh, more population affinity language, which means having to change our research, right? Having to change um, the way that we think about doing research. So for example, if you do, you know, I've seen several of these come out in the last few years. Oh, let's see how white people different from Thai people or, right? Yeah. And it's like, why? Whose demographic does that, you know, have a hypothesis needs to have like proper, you know, do you know anything about, you know, the ethno-historical background? Like, for example, in the U.S., you know, Hispanic includes like a hodgepodge of everything. Right. And Hispanic is a language and it has no biological meaning. Correct. And we shouldn't be using it because someone from Puerto Rico looks nothing like from someone from Bolivia. Or from Brazil, which is oh, where yeah. I'm from, part of, I'm partly from. <laughs> yeah. And even within Brazil, uh, right. you can, and that's because of human migration patterns, which is another thing that you study, especially in the Americas. Um, yeah. You know, so that's, that, that sort of, um, I guess the, in the, in the genetics field, we call it admixture, right? Where you have um, inter, intermingling between different ethnic groups because of human migration patterns. And so, yeah, these categories, Hispanic, what does that even mean? 
Right. It doesn't mean anything, you know? So yeah. And that was a recent paper that came out in uh, biology this, this past semester, which addresses, I use Panama, right. Mm -hmm. As uh, the exemplar and compared them to different um, other groups and we showed that they're very different from the Colombians, even though they have a shared history and it goes back to the conquest by the Spaniards, you know, transatlantic slave trade, you know, decimation of indigenous population, yeah. building of the canal, the railroad brought in all kinds of people from all over to help, you know, uh, Chinese, different people. Um, to help build these huge structures. Right, right. And okay. And so what is another area of research that you are also currently working on? Sorry, I hit my thing down here and Coco thinks someone's at the door. That's okay. We love dogs on this show. We often, (laughs) we had a couple of German shepherds on not too long ago who were very frightened by a storm. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, Um, So I'm trying to think what projects, uh, one of the projects I'm looking at right now is using bone mineral density to get a better age at death for individuals 40 plus, right? Because you have that whole 40 plus age range, your, your confidence interval is very, you know, broad in the terms of you'll get an age range from 27 to to dead right and like (laughs) somewhere in between because it's so difficult okay and and that's because we lose bone density after a certain age does it differ for males and females uh yes it does differ from males and females um but it does deplete you know at a steady rate after you know you hit like 30-ish Right. So, yeah. So I think that that would be interesting. Actually, I was running the stats on that this week. Um, Other things that I've been working on is that Neanderthal paper I have to finish. Uh, There's a paper that um, I'm working on right now um, regarding the um, presence of syphilis. in And the in the United States you know, prior to contact. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's making a comeback too. So, you know, it's what I hear. (laughs) I know it sure is. It's crazy. You know, I've had a couple of people tell me that they've had them as cases. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's making a comeback. There's some hot spots in the U S. Um, so how does syphilis show up in terms of a forensic, um, element or is that just different where you're, like, I mean, does it actually show up forensically? Uh, it has shown up in a couple of my colleagues' labs. Yes. Wow. Because, you know, it's on the rise, you know, and it, you know, it goes undetected for a decade. And then you get, you know, when you detect it, is it's at third stage syphilis, okay. you know, and you can see those scars on the, on the cranium and all okay. of that. Okay. Yeah. Because it affects your brain. It makes you uh, go... 
Yeah. yeah, a bit. <laughs> I was going to actually say cuckoo. Um, I'm thinking of the movie Out of Africa, you know, uh, where that was uh, a, a real centerpiece of that film. Um, so, wow, that's, you know, you do such amazing and diverse work and all of it is so incredibly important from, you know, solving contemporary crimes to cold cases to human migration patterns to you know, uh, population affinity in the Americas and now syphilis. This is, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And the syphilis obviously is prehistoric for my own. Yes. Kit, you know, that's a fun project, but you can see the, the scars of that on the cranium in prehistoric. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So what I'm actually, um, doing with that is looking for congenital syphilis, oh, right? Cause okay. you have, really um distinct dental changes oh, if wow. if you know the fetus got it in utero from right. the mother yeah really oh so mm -hmm. this is you know it's something that comes up um i have had a few physical anthropologists and paleontologists on and teeth are like this wealth of information mm -hmm. and i now we can add detecting congenital syphilis to the list yes that's incredible. Um, and I, I had one more thought when, when your, it was a Coco, your, your puppy yes. barked was have animals ever given you a clue in investigating a, a, a crime that, that you're trying to solve? Like, do you ever use like animal, like maybe a, a dog fur is on a body and you can, ID the dog, you know, I think I'm going Actually, back you know, to CSI. That's really, yeah, you're going back to CSI, but I know. No, it's, um, no, I've had several cases, you know, especially when there's trauma to the body that, you know, that's why the Emmy sent it to me. You know, there was trauma to both sides of this one lady's ribs. So they had assumed blunt force trauma. But when you actually started looking at it microscopically, uh, one side, they were at the sternal end, right? Mm -hmm. All these fractures. The other one were more at the midline. Okay. You know, at the uh, place of maximum um, curvature of the rib. Okay. So microscopically looking at that, one side at the maximum curvature were stab wounds. Okay. And the other side on the sternal ends were two marks. Oh. Yes. So I, we were able to, I was able to match because I have a huge um, comparative osteology collection. Okay. And so, that's going to be bite, bite marks? Yeah, bite marks, chew marks. Yeah. So um, it was consistent with the skunk. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, right. Scavenging is scavenging. Scavenging is scavenging. We just had, uh, we're doing one case and it was a raccoon that scavenged. Wow. And then a lot of times if you're like in the woods or something, you'll get scavenged by coyotes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the pattern of scavenging with canids, especially like coyotes, can give you a small insight into the postmortem interval, too. OK. So, yeah, because, you know, they scavenge you in a pattern. So um, in what way? Now I'm fascinated. What's the pattern of coyote scavenging? <laughs> so 
you know, they usually go uh, for the, well, if you have trauma, they'll go for the trauma first, right? Because there's blood, you know, then they kind of, the last thing they, they go to are the limbs where they actually drag the limbs away. So they've been kind of like tables They're they're not that accurate yet because they're based in different regional parts, right? I'm assuming animals behave differently in different environments, correct, as well? Yes. So that needs to have more of a regional base. But um, the last things to go are the limbs. So they have proposed kind of uh, the scoring system that if you see this percentage of the skeleton left, it would take this long to get to this point. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's interesting because what just came up for me was um, in Pima Canyon a couple years ago, there was um, a family of mountain lions. So mountain lions are scavengers. Uh, actually, they'll scavenge quite a bit. Um, people don't often think that. And, and and so there was a mom and her cubs and she they were feeding on a human body. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, they're going to go for, I don't know if it's the same for coyotes, they're going to go for the kidneys and the heart first. It's the most mm-hmm. nutritious, the liver, right? right? It's got the densest nutrients. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they're quite neat. You know, I've seen mountain lion kills. They take the stomach and the intestines and they 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 put it away and they take the, the rest of the body elsewhere. So they really separate the the stomach and the intestines from right, the, rest the yucky of the body. stuff from the stuff that they need to eat. That's right. They, and I will tell you, like, I would make a terrible, terrible forensic pathologist because the smell is like, I still, you know, when I, <laughs> when I smelled the stomach, I, I oh, was, no. that, yeah, I can't, I, I don't was like- just, I was like, oh, Oh no. And my friend who, you know, we, we're bone collectors. So I have my own bone room, but not for any um, scientific purpose. So I'm not sure what that says about me, but, um, <laughs> but she was undeterred and picked up this deer skull and was digging her fingers through the tendons on the head and was like, Oh, look at there's maggots coming out of the eyes. And I was just like, I just need to get away from the stomach. That is it. Um, but anyway, I digress back to the body. So sadly, you know, they unnecessarily killed those three mountain lions um, and the mom wasn't going to back away from the body, you know, and, and so that's why they killed them. And, and then they were able to figure out that actually the man was murdered by someone else and dumped there. And so I'm guessing it has to do with, they must've found some other trauma that was, I think he was shot you know, um, you would find the, yeah, the bullet hole or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So they determined fairly quickly. Well, I think fairly quickly, there was a man that was reported missing (laughs) and then it took a little bit of time, a couple weeks, maybe to link the two together. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was indeed the missing person. Um, so, so yeah, so I, but I hadn't thought about, you know, how far they got with, you know, how, what that means in terms of postmortem time. So, yeah. And, and it's a good thing, I guess, cause you know, the mountain lion could have eaten, right. The evidence where the gunshot wound was, and then that would have been out the window. Right. And then you would, then the poor mountain lions would have gotten the rap for right. you know, the death of a person that, and the other person would have gotten away with it. 
Exactly. Yeah. So I, I am sensitive to your time because as we've already heard, you are just, you know, phenomenal. Um, but I, you know, I just want to touch on one last thing because, you know, you were, you were the beneficiary of, of these amazing mentors. And I know that you are an incredible mentor to students. Do any of them work with you on cases? Yes, actually, um, they all do once, you know, they, they, the first year I, you know, unless you're coming in with a good, well, let me roll that back. Um, if you have a good, strong osteology background, you can, you know, you'll start with the small stuff with the, um, labeling with the setting, uh, um, anatomical position, you know, age at death. So I'll have two, you know, cause we use different, you know, sheets. So when they're in training, it's a different colored sheet. Oh, and I see. I'll go through and do it. Yeah. And then they'll compare to mine. Then we'll look at the measurements. If their measurements are off by two millimeters, I'm like, okay, show me how you're taking it. Right. And maybe they've got the landmarking correctly. The digitizing takes some practice as well, but no, they all get a, a practice. Okay. Are you accepting and they get to, And once they're, they've been with me for a little bit, they get to co-sign the reports with me. Wow. Okay. So, you know, folks may not have heard that. Are you, uh, are you currently accepting students? Do you take people who already have a PhD? Sure. It should be easier <laughs> with somebody that has a PhD. <laughs> All right. I am considering seriously a career change. I almost became a forensic scientist in Florida. They, they, uh, so I grew up in Florida and I, I did work with the police department. I was very interested in that. And then in North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, I did the, you know, citizens police course and I was trying to figure out how to get in there. Uh, I think I applied for their DNA, you know, forensics lab. Oh, wow. Um, position. I I didn't get it. Um, but you know, so I've always had this interest. So, so we'll have to talk about that more in the future. Um, And you'll have to meet my student, Sarah, who got a master's under me and she's coming back for her PhD in the fall. She's been a CSI for the last five years for Durham PD. Wow. I will definitely have to talk to her because that uh, it wasn't Durham. It was Carrie, I think, or Raleigh. I think it was Carrie I applied for. But anyway, I digress. The audience doesn't need to hear about my uh, career uh, you know, thoughts. Um, thank you so much. Again, Dr. Ann Ross, a spectacular um, forensic anthropologist and, you know, uh, and, and person for being on the show. And thank you so much for the invite. It was fun. You heard in the interview that wildlife and other animal forensics has grown as a field in the past 10 years. This is helping to identify poachers and even solve crimes. Back in 2017, there was a mystery involving a hunting dog and a wild boar in a forest in Germany. That hunting dog was shot in the chest. The dog died and no one was speaking up. The German government wanted to know what happened so that it could warn people. If you shoot someone's hunting dog and no one sees you do it, Forensic science will still find you. The only evidence were six hairs from a wild boar. The beauty of forensic science, CSI type shows aside, is that six hairs, if they retain the follicle, yields enough DNA to see which boar those hairs belong to. But what about the dog and who shot it? I couldn't find the answer published, but I'm guessing it's the hunter that had that particular boar. 
That's all for this week. And the next episode on February 11th is leading up to International Women and Girls in Science Day. If you like the show, consider following and sharing with those you know. Check out the show notes on jenniferverdalen.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean for how to keep up with Dr. Ann Ross. Till next time. 